Engage quantum drive. Hey now, and welcome to Quantum Drive. I'm Rob. I'm Katie. And our ongoing mission is to discuss every episode of The Orville. Today, we'll be discussing Season 3, Episode 1, Electric Sheep, which was written and directed by Seth MacFarlane. We have no new reviews this episode, but remember that you can go to Apple Podcasts, leave a five-star review, and we will read it on the podcast. You can also email us at quantumdrive at thegeekgeneration.com. You can follow us on Twitter at quantumdrivepod. You can join our Discord to discuss the podcast and the show at thegeekgeneration.com slash Discord. And if you'd like access to Mark's alternate one-sentence reviews, you can support the show on Patreon at thegeekgeneration.com slash support. Before we talk about the episode, Katie has trivia. We have a lot of trivia and guest stars, which I was a little bit worried about considering in the past we've been able to use Google and some of the other resources available to us because the show had already been out. Mm -hmm. So this is the first time we're doing this season where we're seeing it for the first time, maybe even a little earlier. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. But being able to do a little detective work and find some fun facts has been kind of nice. So I feel like we're going to pave the way for some fun facts, hopefully. Agreed. Okay, so up first, there is a new character on the show named Ensign Charlie Burke, played by Anne Winters, and prior to the Orville, Anne had recurring roles on The Fosters, Wicked City, Tyrant, Zack and Mia, and 13 Reasons Why. Yeah, new cast member this season. I'm sure we will have a lot to say about Ensign Burke as we go through the episode. I actually had watched her on 13 Reasons Why. So when we, I was like looking up the cast, I was like, oh my gosh, I know who this is. So it was... It's neat to see her in this environment, though. First time for me. So just learning about Ann Winters and Charlie Burke at the same time. Mm-hmm. Up next, Tequilian makes an appearance in this as John's partner, if you will. A Tequilian woman. A Tequilian uh, woman. That's a race, yes. Yes, played by Alexis Knapp. And she played Stacy in the Pitch Perfect movies and Tori in the first season of Ground Floor. Yeah, I love the first Pitch Perfect movie, and I watched Ground Floor for most of it. It was a sitcom. I don't even remember which channel it aired on, but it was a pretty good sitcom, and uh, she was great in both those things. She's also a uh, big Trekkie. Oh. So she probably enjoyed doing this role for that reason. Yeah. And oddly enough, and I don't know, I can't imagine this has any connection, but... I follow her on Twitter and I've interacted with her a few times, but she's a big fan of albino animals. Oh, so I found it interesting that she's on a Star Trek like show with pale white skin. It's a really interesting alien race. Yeah. And that makeup job must have taken a long time, but it was very impressive. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And this isn't the first time we've seen Tequilians in the Orville. When Ed and Kelly were in the Calavon Zoo, they met one in the episode Command Performance. Mm -hmm. And there are two also sitting in the Union Council during Havina's speech in the episode Sanctuary. Yeah, I'm glad that I did a rewatch of seasons one and two recently or else I would have probably missed a lot of this stuff. Yeah. Yeah, so Rob found some of these fun facts, too. (laughs) Full disclosure. So I'm very grateful that Rob had his Hawkeyes looking for stuff as well. We both do our homework. Yeah, we do our homework. (laughs) 
Ensign Burke mentions that she was stationed on the USS Quimby during the battle with the Kalon. We see the Quimby get destroyed in Identity Part 1 as a Kalon interceptor makes a kamikaze run into it. I didn't realize that. Another little thing that I caught, I was coincidentally watching Identity Part 1 and 2 the same week that I got to see this episode. Mm-hmm. I don't think I would have made the connection otherwise. That's a fun Easter and fun Easter egg. The ship explodes and a bunch <laughs> of people die, but it's like a you wouldn't have picked up on that, like you said, had you not been doing a rewatch of the show. So I like that they tie that stuff together because it's attention to detail and I do think it makes a difference. Yeah, world building. Mm-hmm. Another thing at the beginning of this episode, there is a dedication to Norm MacDonald, who played the beloved character of Yafit. So I thought it was a nice way to start off season three. And also it's kind of sad, but Yafit had my heart and has my heart. And it was really nice to see him in this episode. Yeah, I'm really glad that Norm got to get all this done prior. So at the very least, we get to spend some time with Yafit once more. Yeah. There is a new costume designer this year or in this season. Mary Chisholm is listed in the credits and has worked on a lot of other shows, including Sleepy Hollow, and helped with costuming for Captain Marvel, Pirates of the Caribbean on Stranger Tides, some of the Fast and Furious franchise, among a lot of other things. Nice. Yeah, there's a lot of costume updates this season. There are. Yeah, we'll get to some of those for sure. Kevin Casca has joined this season as part of the composing team, which was already made up of John Debney, Joel McNeely, and Andrew Cote, who have all scored multiple episodes of the show. And Bruce Broughton composed the main title theme and the music for the pilot episode. So Casca has been a composer on a lot of other features, including Patrick Swayze's starring feature called Jump, Laika's Paranorman and Missing Link, and some video games as well. Nice. Yeah. Big composing team, and I'm sure they needed every single person. There is a lot of new music this season, and Mark was pointing out, that's new, that's different. So, you know, Mark's a music teacher, so he was just all about noticing the new music details of this season. There's a part of this episode where Claire is holding a banana while remembering Isaac, which is a callback to season two, episode six, A Happy Refrain, where Isaac brings a banana as a visiting gift to Dr. Finn. Yeah, that was a nice touch. So if anyone was like, what's the banana about? Because if you're just jumping in with this first episode, you're like, why is there a banana? The connection is not the banana ray that we saw in the pilot episode. Nope. <laughs> it's a different banana. At the end of the credits, there is a listing for COVID advisors, which stuck out to me immediately. And I paused the screen because I wanted, I don't know, they filmed this during a pandemic. So it's not like this was an easy time to film a show. Mm -hmm. And it listed Dr. Larry Brilliant and Panda Events Advisory, which made me think about how there are people in the world who help make sets safe and environments safe to get work done. So I thought they needed a shout out because... I'm sure they helped make this season safer. And that's why we have the Orville season three, because they filmed during the pandemic. Yeah, not just safer, but possible even. Yeah. The bridge has been completely redone this season. The carpet has been removed. If you notice, the bridge is brand new. Mm. When you see side by sides, I'm like, it looks like a brand new set. It is probably, but New Horizons is also the name of this season. And Seth MacFarlane has said, it seemed that because the show was going to be making such an uptick in scope, and in many ways going to feel like a reset. It felt like it wanted something special. You had a new opening title, a new set, new costumes, a new look, just a new aesthetic that really competes in the world of streaming shows. So I thought it was interesting that they decided to give it its own title this season. 
Yeah, like a total rebrand in a way. I always find it interesting when shows do that. Personally, I don't need that. Like you can keep Mm -hmm. calling it the Orville and keep using the same theme song. But if that's what they feel is going to bring in maybe new people, then heck, go for it. Why not? Yeah, it is like a new horizon, though. There's so much when you watch this episode, and I know we'll jump into it, but there's a lot of newness to it. Absolutely. Yeah. There is a quote from Brooke Noska about episode one, who we were very lucky enough to interview does visual effects for the show, asked, how long does it take to make effects like we see in this opening episode, which was very heavy with special effects and very beautiful looking visuals. And she said it usually takes on a normal television schedule or a network about eight to 10 weeks. For our new streaming Hulu experience, we've dedicated about 20 to 24 weeks per episode. Oh, my God. Yeah. If there wasn't a pandemic in the middle of it, but that's more than double. That's crazy. Yeah. I made a comment in my notes later on that like the crew needs to be commended on this visual work. It is unbelievable. It's awe-inspiring. I just remember the new opening title sequence even. It's just like Mm -hmm. you can't look away. It's I call it space porn. It's just so much space porn. And I just I love it so much. Yeah, it looks fantastic. Yeah. The last fun fact I have is that the title of this episode is called Electric Sheep, which seems like it is an homage to the book Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep by Philip K. Dick. And the book is a prolific sci-fi novel that deals with androids in a dystopian future. And I was going to do more of a descriptor for the book, but I was like, that's spoilers. Mm. But it seems like it is tied in to that. I think that's enough to make the connection. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Getting into the episode itself. We begin in the beginning of a massive space battle between the Union, Krill, and Kalon. As we zoom into the Orville, Marcus Finn is running through the corridor while ship debris and sparks are flying. Marcus finds his brother Ty and they briefly look out the window to watch the carnage when they turn around to see Isaac. As Isaac's eyes turn red and his face reveals a mouthful of fangs, Marcus wakes up from his nightmare. In the trailer they put out, One of the things I noticed was the fangs in the Isaac's face. It was just like a snap in the trailer. And I got very excited about that because I'm a big horror junkie. And it just seemed like, where is that going to play into this? And I don't know. That whole beginning sequence, I was like, what is going on? I didn't Mm -hmm. know what was happening. I thought, is this actually like they're still in the battle? I was trying to like place it. And the show did the thing where it's a nightmare, but it was effective because I was just like, I don't know where this season's going to go, but opening with that was an ingenious idea to me. Yeah, there's actually, because they flash back to the identity battle, Mm -hmm. there's a scene where Marcus is running and the hull tears open and a couple crew members fly out. I don't know if they refilm that or if it's a direct rip, but having, like I said, just rewatched Identity while I was also watching this, like at the same time, it's like the same shot. Those people get torn out and fly out of the hull in Identity as well as they do in The Nightmare here. Yeah, they start the show off with that. Is this actually happening? And is the Orville getting torn apart? And it's stressful, too, because it's Marcus and Ty. And you're like, I don't want anything to happen to them. But The visual effects of Isaac turning into essentially a monster was one of my favorite things from this episode. Just Mm. you think about it. He's a robot. His face opening up to reveal these teeth and like a fiery void was awesome is the word that comes to mind, but also terrifying. When you were watching the sequence, was there a point 
when you realized this was a nightmare before Marcus woke up? The moment I realized it was a nightmare is when Isaac's face opened, but that's pretty much at the end of the sequence anyway. Right, right. Overall, I didn't. I was sitting there. I'm like, this is how they're starting the season. They're in a battle. And I immediately was like, who's going to die? And which characters might die right now? Because some shows do that. You know, like I've seen Game of Thrones. Oh, I was like waiting for someone that I care about to just get ripped through a hole in the side of the Orville. And yeah, I didn't realize it was a nightmare. Did you figure that out? As soon as they turned around to see Isaac behind them, that's when I was like, this is a dream. Before the red and the fangs and everything, because he wasn't there a second ago. Yeah. I think that's the turning point, but it's like right before he wakes up. So yeah, maybe a little bit of a giveaway. But yeah, when he opened his mouth is when I realized, oh, this is oh, probably yeah. not real. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think he has fangs. I don't think that's does that's he have new. Fangs? Yeah, that's <laughs> I know a new he looks thing. a little different, but that's very new. Yeah. Lamar approaches Isaac in one of the science labs, and it's here we learn that the Orville is currently docked for a refit. Isaac then heads to the mess hall so Lamar can work in the lab. He joins a group of crewmen at a table who all promptly leave as soon as he sits down. However, Ensign Charlie Burke soon returns to her seat. Their conversation starts light, but quickly turns to a story of Charlie losing her best friend as the two try to evacuate the ship. Before she leaves again, she tells Isaac about all the people who blame him for the losses suffered during the attack by the Kalon. Didn't expect Charlie to come out swinging. No, and it was an interesting twist because... When she gets up and she leaves, I was like, okay, well, I guess that's how we meet Charlie. But then she comes back and I was like, okay, she's making nice. Mm -hmm. But then she twisted it again and turned it around the other way and really goes at him. I get it a little bit. I love Isaac as a character, even though the Kalon want humans dead. Isaac has this like soft spot in my heart and it just feels harsh right out the gate. When you, you know there's going to be a new character on a show, you don't think about, oh, they're going to introduce them in a maybe a hostile way. And mm-hmm. that's how Charlie is introduced. And she just comes out the gate like, hey, people kind of hate you and they don't want you here. And I thought it was interesting. This is also when Tala overhears it. Mm-hmm. And I thought it was interesting that Tala didn't go over to talk to Isaac after it happened. She may have, but we didn't get to see it. Yeah, it would have been off camera if that were the case. But yeah, but I agree with you that she probably didn't based on she just says later on, oh, I saw this happen. They do cut away to that epic sequence of the Quimby and Mm -hmm. her friend sacrificing herself for Charlie. I do feel like having a Kalon on board is probably a huge reminder of the people you lost Mm -hmm. and the battles that you couldn't prevent and the destruction that was left behind. So I understand where Charlie's coming from, but because I've been spending two seasons with Isaac, it made me sad that it was just like, hey, we kind of hate you. I was worried for a moment that they weren't going to cut to a flashback because it did seem like Charlie was going on for a little bit before they actually did. And I was just worried we were going to get just exposition here and a lot of Charlie just telling us, but being able to see it, Mm -hmm. there's that rule of filmmaking, show don't tell. So being able to actually see it and go through it with her makes us feel for her a little bit more. Yeah, I feel like it gives you a little bit more of her perspective, which I think makes it more palatable to go like, okay, I kind of get why she hates Isaac. But it also takes something different for someone to turn back around, sit down at a table and then to someone's face Mm -hmm. 
in this case, Isaac, just be like, hey, this is why you deserve to feel everything. And it's a shame that you can't feel everything because you're, you know, he's getting blamed for all of the Kalon. Yeah, there was a maliciousness to her action. Yeah, I get it, though. I mean, it's an interesting commentary. Mm-hmm. And I do feel like as this episode started and we start seeing the characters all again and meeting new characters, that somberness of coming off of a battle mm. that just occurred, I definitely could feel that in the air of the ship. And it seems like it's still very fresh yeah. and very much like still with everybody. So it's hard to probably move on from it if there's like a Kalon just walking around, you know, helping yeah. on the ship. Doesn't mean it's fair, but... Isaac makes his way back to the science lab while every crew member he passes seems to be glaring at him. In the lab, he finds graffiti on the wall that simply says murderer. And then we get our cut to the new title sequence, Mm -hmm. which was fantastic. Yeah, it was great. Ed and Kelly are called to the astrophysics lab by Tala to see the graffiti. They're unable to track who replicated the paint as a mid-level access code seems to have been stolen to do it. With no other leads, Tala informs them that she overheard the conversation with Charlie and Isaac in the mess hall. It's here that Isaac reveals he's been harassed by the crew frequently since his reinstatement, but didn't report it because he's incapable of being bothered by it. I wish I could be incapable of being bothered by things. (laughs) You know how people put human qualities onto pets or Mm -hmm. inanimate objects? I do that with Isaac. Because I'm like, yeah, he's, there's got to be like a little bit. It's kind of like Claire. Like he has to have something. He has to have that. And it's hard to still think about it in terms of like, how can he not be bothered by someone telling him nobody wants you here? Yeah. It's like, it's such a hard concept to grasp. But I know like later in the episode, you start to wonder, did it bother him? I imagine we'll have some conversations about that as we continue. <laughs> mm hmm. In Mercer's office, Charlie swears that she's not responsible for the graffiti. When allowed to speak freely, the ensign tells Ed about how many people aboard still have a big problem with Isaac being part of the crew. I like this discussion a lot. Mm -hmm. I think both sides have good points. Yeah. We don't know that Isaac doesn't have some sort of sleeper program that could jeopardize the ship. Yeah. But like Ed said, he is a valuable asset if, big if, if they can trust him. Ed kind of acknowledges, too, that maybe there is some... He didn't disagree completely with Charlie. I like how candid he was with her. Yeah. And said, this is something that a captain shouldn't necessarily admit, but I don't know that you're wrong. It does plant the seed, though, as a viewer. Like, Mm -hmm. does he have a sleeper program? Because technically, he kind of did. Like, a literal sleeper program in last season. In a way, to get home, yet he was still aware the entire time of what his mission was, which I think is the thing that they're really holding against him. Yeah, which is tough. That's something that's hard to resolve. Mm -hmm. It's like if you had a friend and this whole time they were doing something malicious, but they felt justified in it. And then after the fact, they just were like, it's just what I was supposed to do. Yeah, though in Isaac's defense, his intention wasn't always to just attack the biologicals. That wasn't the plan. He was just giving data back to the home world so they could make a decision about how they were going to proceed. I have such a soft spot for androids on spaceships. Oh, I know. (laughs) Data is one of my favorite characters of all time. And so I find myself creating excuses for Isaac Mm. a lot of the time. It's because I still feel like it's like there's got to be something 
that he has learned from being on the Orville and being around these people that have allowed him to logically see that there's more to it than just. And I think there's evidence of that. I think he turned against his people as a result. See, there's got to be something there about it. There's got to be. Yeah, I find myself just kind of siding with Isaac a lot of the time because I can see the point of Ed and Charlie. But there's a line later in the show, not to jump too far ahead, where Claire says it's hard to hate from up close. Mm -hmm. And that really like hit me because I'm like, it's it's true. Sometimes it gives people time or they need time to get to that point Mm -hmm. of forgiveness or even realizing like this person can be trusted. I say person speaking about Isaac. Yeah. But there's always going to be that fear that there's something Isaac knows that he hasn't shared or there's something that could pop up in his programming at any point and cause an even bigger problem, especially now that the Kalon are like in hot pursuit. Yeah. Side note, name another show that can have a conversation like this while there's a Kermit the Frog plushie on the desk. <laughs> oh, I made a note about this. I said, yes, like in all caps, Kermit is still there. Heck yeah. Yeah, I was so excited to see Kermit. Another thing besides loving androids on spaceships is I love the Muppets. And (laughs) just the fact that Kermit, the greatest leader of all time, is still on the desk made my heart happy. So I'm glad you made a note about that, too. On the outside hull of the ship, Lamar, Yafit, Turco, and a small group are continuing to work on the refit. They're excited to see the arrival of Gordon in the Pterodon, a new single manned fighter shuttlecraft. When Gordon mentions Isaac, he reveals to Charlie that he agrees with her that Isaac shouldn't have been reinstated. What do you think? Do you think Isaac should have been reinstated? It goes back to the prior argument. I feel like both sides have valid points. Mm -hmm. I do wonder, because we haven't seen Isaac's usage yet against the Kalon, everything Isaac did prior to this is stuff that the union would have done anyway, like using an EMP and stuff like that. Yeah. We have yet to see Isaac's usefulness to support Ed's argument. And until we do, it's kind of hard to fully side with Ed on this. But from a fan perspective and watching the show, I want Isaac around because I think his character is very important to the stories that they tell. So from an outside the show perspective, almost. Yeah, of course Mm -hmm. he should be back in. I don't I don't want to see Mark Jackson leave the show. I don't want to see Isaac gone. Yeah. But from an in-story perspective, it's hard to say one way or the other right now. It harkens back to me like Star Trek, where it's very gray. Mm -hmm. There's never really quite a right answer, but it's probably my thought process is like, oh, well, he did eventually help turn the tides so that we could. Like, that's a pretty heroic and, in a sense, a loyal response. Mm -hmm. Like, to turn completely on your own people. Yes, it took some time to get there, but it still happened. I could see from, like, the union standpoint of being like, this person, I keep calling him a person because he's a person to me. Uh, Isaac is a valued member of the union. Mm -hmm. And I like it because it forgives some of that stuff that happened that Mm -hmm. is actually can be unforgivable. It shows that humanity, first of all, but also that sometimes you can mess up, even big mess ups, and you still have room here. And I think I appreciate that because I do hope our future society is more like that in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. So I can see why he's reinstated versus not. Well, to make the Star Trek connection, as we often do, think about how many times some sort of sleeper program woke up in data and he pulled the Enterprise into a dangerous situation. 
and proved that he can just take over the ship whenever he wants to. Isaac's not far off from that. No. And would we argue that Data should have been taken out of Starfleet? Maybe. Never. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, you never. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I do see. But there's the, a similarity, and they don't know. So I, I do feel like one of the things from this scene specifically, Gordon saying that he didn't agree was very intriguing to me. I was surprised by Gordon's perspective here. I was too. This is another moment where I feel that somberness kind of kicked in, where mm-hmm. it felt more things felt a little different than it had. Yeah. Aside from. Claire and her boys, I always thought that Gordon was probably the closest with Isaac because mm-hmm. they had a lot of interaction. <laughs> he amputated his leg and stuff yeah, like the, that. Yeah, the prank. Like, yeah. They have a lot going together and Gordon feels almost like a, a human tutor to him in some ways. However, we have seen Gordon betrayed by a friend before in yeah. Blood of Patriots. Mm-hmm. I'm wondering if he's having a hard time dealing with the betrayal of Isaac because it's so close in proximity to his other friend betraying him. Like those things happen like side by side episodes. That's a lot. And Gordon might be really hurt from all that stuff. Gordon also seems like a very loyal friend. Mm -hmm. And I could see one of those like well-meaning friends who gives a lot and then that one time somebody just like not stabs you in the back but kind of stabs you in the heart Mm -hmm. and i could definitely see that stinging because gordon was even talking about how sitting on the bridge he has to pretend and i thought it was a little harsh that charlie was like don't pretend and essentially just be mad be mad and i think that that showed the two different sides of maybe dealing with it more of like a sadness in gordon and charlie just being like fired up and she even says like he might not be around for much longer. Mm. And I noticed that because clearly some other stuff happens in this episode, but because I watched this twice, obviously. And just when you watch it the first time, I was so emotionally invested in everything. And then the second time I try to just take it all in and then you, you know, what's going to happen now. So I just noticed her saying that. And I'm like, it, it was almost like a misdirect of, did she murder Isaac or write the murderer thing on the wall? Yeah. Oh yeah. I think that was an intentional misdirect. Yeah. It seems like they're fast friends, though. I'm very curious to see in the future season where Gordon and Charlie's relationship is going to go. Claire and Ty then check in on Isaac and engineering. When they ask how he's doing after the incident, he simply states that he's functioning within normal parameters. Nothing super surprising about Isaac's reaction here. (laughs) No, it is nice, though, that Claire, because clearly they're not together anymore, which makes sense. I don't know that anybody would be. Right. But that they stop by to make sure, hey, are you okay? Because I think Claire and Ty, they still see that life in him that is more than just an operating system. Yeah, I agree. I uh, couldn't help noticing in the scene, though, that we get our first look at the quantum core. Yes, which we get a better look at later in the episode. But this is we get to like see it now. It's super cool. Just the visual effects alone in this episode, which if you're a new viewer, I feel like it's just incredible to see the details i mean when gordon's flying in on that new pterodon shuttle Mm -hmm. or is that like more of like a military jet is the best way that i can think about it yeah it's like a tactical dogfighter yeah so you see just the cgi and all the visual effects from last season to now feels so different 
even like the show is a little darker. Mm -hmm. It's more theatrical, but everything just looks so good. Yeah. And I'm excited to see the Quantum Drive because our show is called Quantum Drive. And now I'm like, that's what it looks like. <laughs> yeah, it looks awesome. Gordon takes the Pterodon out for target practice against some drones that Ensign Burke is controlling. It's here we learn that Charlie is capable of visualizing four-dimensional geometry, a rare talent. Little throwaway line there that's going to come back to be important later on. I had one of those moments where if a thought bubble could pop above my head, it just would say, Katie will remember this. It's like a, <laughs> oh, just one of those things where I'm like, that's foreshadowing for something that's going to come up later. What did you think of this whole sequence between Charlie and Gordon or like the back and forth? I thought their verbal back and forth was great. I love the visually just I mean, I know we were just saying how impressive mm -hmm. everything looks, but the visuals here are just crazy cool. I loved when the pterodon like buzzed by the bridge. Yeah. My production brain is like, I mean, they can time it and put the ship in, however, but just so impressed by Ann Winters here in that, like, just getting that little smirk right as he buzzes by and stuff. Like, they're probably working with some sort of green screen or who knows what's actually there. She's possibly not seeing anything and just has to react to that in such a subtle yet effective way. I did read. And I'll probably try to find this for a future episode about the bridge, just the screen mm -hmm. that they used to film. So I'm wondering if they did have any cues maybe on that. Yeah. Yeah. I've heard some stuff about that, too. So I was curious. It's just very impressive scene overall, though. One thing that I did think about in here, too, though, is that I do wonder how far the Pterodon is from the ship and the station because we see it buzz right by the bridge. We see it loop past the engines and everything. So I'm mm -hmm. assuming it's fairly close and not crazy far away. So it surprised me a little bit that they're using live rounds as they're doing this test. Yes. I'm like a missed shot could hit something and then we got a problem. Like my assumption was that when Gordon fired one and hit a drone, it would be like some sort of a pulse that would just disable it. And they were like practice rounds almost. But the fact that it seemed like they were using live ammo and blowing them up, I was like, this is way more dangerous than I thought it should have been. Yeah. Mark was saying, wait, are they using like actual ammunition? I'm like, it looks like it. I had cannoned it with Gordon. It's just that good. <laughs> so they're just like, let them do the drones. Let them do live ammo. But as he's like blowing these drones up, I'm thinking about all the space trash that's being made. Oh, that too. Yeah, <laughs> they can clean that up. That's fine. They'll clean that up. Yeah, but yeah, 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 I noticed that too. But part of me was like, maybe it is just like a simulation simulated. I don't know. Mm. They have the technology on the inside of the ship. I don't know if they have it on the outside. Plus, I don't true. know if that would be a true test of the Pterodon if they're using simulations. Who's making those drones? Like, is someone just so pissed on like a lower deck? Like, oh my gosh, he's blowing up the drones again. <laughs> I don't know, but I hope they come back for something. Yeah. Tala calls Kelly to report that they've identified who replicated the paint, and it was Marcus Finn. In Ed's office, Marcus is trying to defend his actions to his mother, while Claire is very angry with him. Ed says that they can let this one slide as long as it doesn't happen again. Claire calls Isaac to her office, and the two then head to the Finns' quarters. Isaac apologized for causing him distress, but Marcus doesn't want to hear it. He tells Isaac that the whole ship wants him gone, and personally, he wishes Isaac was dead. We then see Isaac silently walking the corridors back to the science lab. He pauses for a moment to look out into space. 
In the lab, he leaves an audio log with the ship updates and his best wishes for the Finn family. Isaac extends his finger wires into a nearby EM amplification module, which seems to shock him, causing him to fall to the floor. His eyes then blink and fade out. Oh, man. The emotions that I went through. Oh, I'm sure. Oh. You were just talking about, are they going to kill somebody in the first yeah, episode back? I didn't expect that. Mm. And the whole time I'm, the first time watching this, I'm sitting there like, they can't kill Isaac. They won't do this. They won't do that. And I was like, I was like trying to convince myself, like when they're going to bring him back, there's a lot of episode left. They're going to bring him back. And it's like one of those things where I was stalling the emotion from it because it hearkened me back to the line of like, oh, are you okay? And he's like, none of this affects me. And you go like, but did it affect him? He just literally killed himself. Yeah. I was impressed with how well they showed Isaac's thought patterns as he was simply walking through the corridor. I would have said emotions, of course, but that's still up for debate. We'll get to that, I'm sure. He's silent on his walk and his movements seem fairly normal, but there's a sadness about the whole thing and we don't even know what he's going to do yet. And part of that could possibly be, again, our projections onto him and us feeling sad for him. Obviously, the music adds a bunch to that. But man, just the whole package coming together. I wonder if the direction to Mark Jackson was walk through the corridor as Isaac would, sadly, even though his movements seem very normal. Like, can we feel... Mark Jackson's performance through the suit, even though we can't see his face. I'm wondering in this scene. I think so. And I have a lot of thoughts because I know we do our like takeaway at the end. Mm -hmm. Just the way that they did this episode, because it deals with a very heavy subject matter. Yeah. Which I didn't expect episode one to have Isaac taking his own life. And we find out that that is what he intended to do. Yeah. It wasn't just like a psych gotcha kind of thing. And when he's walking through that hallway, it's very much that pensive. Even though he's a robot, he's thinking through his options. And I don't think that that is too far fetched from what an actual person goes through if they're contemplating suicide. Yeah. Like he went and when you're gazing out into space, why else would he need to do that? I had that thought as well. Yeah, that was a very emotional response. It's not a logical thing to be like, let me go take one last look at space. And that's, I think, what they were alluding to. Mm. One of the things that I very much appreciate is because like topics like this, you have to handle correctly. Oh, yeah. And I think that that setup scene, the first time I watched it, I don't think I thought too much of it. And so then on my second watch through, you can feel the emotion mm -hmm. in that scene, like you were saying. And I'm sure, well, Mark Jackson had to have known Isaac's about to go do this. Mm -hmm. So there had to have been maybe something. But that's so impressive that he was able to communicate that as Isaac. Yeah. So, yeah, I didn't expect any of this because even in the trailer for the season, I think we see the murderer written on the. Yes. Yeah. The wall. And so there's like, I got excited because I'm like, oh my gosh, they're going to deal with some like topics this season. Yeah. And if this is just episode one, I'm very curious to see where they're going to go for episodes in the future. But I appreciate that they're not shying away from things that could potentially be seen as controversial or mm -hmm. difficult for people to deal with. Yeah. Tala calls Ed and Kelly to the lab where they're joined by John and Claire to examine what Isaac did. When asked why Isaac would do what he did, Claire states that Isaac committed suicide, and John agrees. 
In engineering, Yafet has entered Isaac's body in an attempt to repair the damage. Ed comments that he had no idea things had gotten this bad. Tala wonders how he could get to that place with no emotions, but Claire adds that she never believed he completely lacked them. When Yafet reforms, he says that there's nothing he can do. Isaac is gone. Back in the Finns' quarters, Claire attempts to comfort Marcus and insists that this was Isaac's choice and his choice alone. This is the moment where I'm like, oh, did they kill Isaac? And part of me was like reconciling, like, maybe they did. Mm. Because the Kalon are such an antagonistic part of the show now. I was like, maybe the first episode. I've been betrayed by so many shows in the past that have just done that. Like, I loved The Walking Dead. Nobody was safe on The Walking Dead. Game of Thrones, like all these shows that just kind of toy with that. And I'm not saying the Orville's like toying with that, but they did put out a very realistic, almost confirmation of, hey, I don't think Isaac's coming back. Because mm. like Yafit went in to fix him and was just like, he is fried. He knew what he was doing, which again, parallels a lot of the difficult topics that come up when you talk about suicide. Yeah. So it's just like almost people bargaining, like, can we get him back? We're going to try everything to get him back. In a way, I almost feel like I'd have to sit back through the episode and see if they did go through the stages of grief, but I believe that they did. Oh, interesting. I didn't even consider that. Yeah. And so then Marcus is obviously upset because he literally just told Isaac, "Yeah, I wish you were dead. So part of me is like, did Isaac think about that as now an option? Because mm-hmm. Marcus put it into his mind. Not in a malicious way, but that right, he's right, like, right. I have new information. Sure. Because later on, he does talk about like, oh, so he says something about I didn't have all the data at the time. Mm-hmm. This was a new bit of data that he got. Yeah. I will say that there's no point at which I thought he was actually dead. <laughs> like, I mean, oh, I know really? I know they killed him, but I was like, he'll be fine by the end of the episode. <laughs> I don't know. I was so... Maybe I just haven't been (laughs) hurt by other shows as many times as you have. I just feel like you can never trust (laughs) if it's going to actually work out. And now that they're on Hulu, which I know, (laughs) it just feels like the show looks a little different. Tonally, it's a little bit more serious. It's very cinematic. And I'm like, they could kill Isaac. The new horizon is that nobody is safe. (laughs) (laughs) No one's safe. There's just like a tagline. Like, you might kill your favorite character. (laughs) At that moment, again, I did that thing where I'm like, there's still time left. Mm -hmm. But I think just philosophically, the episode came out swinging. Mm -hmm. And I was so invested in that, that when a Yafit couldn't fix them, I'm like, they could just spend the rest of this episode talking about this and the complications that go along with it. And they had a freaking funeral at some point for Isaac. So like everything yeah. was confirming that. It's kind of what they did do before they brought him back. They went through yeah. all the things that they would have done had this character been permanently killed off. Toying with my heart, honestly. <laughs> <laughs> I think that was the intention. It worked, okay. <laughs> In the briefing room, Claire and Kelly discuss the complicated feelings that Claire still has about Isaac. She tried to put any feelings about him out of her mind and is having difficulty processing what remains. Kelly suggests that she finds out what she's still burying and deal with whatever she encounters. As Mercer gives an eulogy for Isaac, Claire is shown confronting her feelings. She finds Ty in the simulator talking to a projection of Isaac. Dr. Finn tells him that while it's tempting to use the simulator for such things, it can't bring people back and can actually get in the way of healing. When Ty leaves, 
Claire activates the simulation of the restaurant where her and Isaac had their first date. After a few moments, she sits down and bursts into tears. That like made me emotional reading it. Yeah. Because and Rob's going to be like, I'm going to be so uncomfortable if Katie starts crying. (laughs) (laughs) But literally the first time I watched this through, I like tried to stifle back tears Mm because like throughout the whole episode, I was like, no, they're not going to do this to me. And almost because I was so engrossed in it. Yeah. And then the second time I watched this, I can confirm I had a complete breakdown (laughs) because I felt like it deals with grief in a way that I don't feel like, I don't know, you don't expect it sometimes in Mm -hmm. shows to deal with it in such a honest way because Claire has to deal with some stuff that's not cut and dry. Yeah. Like Isaac is a robot on top of the fact that she had a relationship with an android, which might be considered unconventional. Then he betrayed the human race and literally the union. And then he kills himself. Yeah. That's the conversation that Claire and Kelly had, right? Claire's almost scared to confront where she stands on all this. And she says something to the effect of like, if I find out that I still love him, what does that make me? Like, how do I respond to that? And regardless, what can I even do about it now? I think that was something that I felt because it's a show that takes place in space and we have all that sci-fi goodness that I love. And these shows make me feel nostalgic and comforted because Mm -hmm. they tie back to Star Trek and what I grew up with. But I felt like it was kind of a beautiful way to deal with something that's so complicated. Yeah. And I thought the writing in this scene specifically was very poignant because it's like with grief, a lot of times you don't really know what you're supposed to do with it. Mm Mm-hmm. And people like shy away from talking about it, which I think is a huge problem in our society in general. But it's like we all deal with grief and we all do our best to like move through it. I think a lot of times we all push it down because it's the easiest thing to do. But now that Isaac is gone, she has to reconcile it herself. Also, when she went and found Ty in the simulator with Isaac, that broke my heart. Oh, yeah. And just then it brought up this whole thing in my head of like you lose someone. You could just go to the simulator and bring them back. And I'm going to not cry. I don't know why I'm going to cry, Rob. (laughs) But it just brings up a lot of stuff like I have. Yeah. So, yeah. So I just thought it was a really nice, as I'm trying to like rein it back in. It was a really nice way to like. happen. Yeah. (laughs) Just like it's going to be okay. But it's just something when you think about it, like I never thought about the simulator being used in a way like that. Mm -hmm. But that how Claire had to go. It can really be damaging. Yeah. And Ty wouldn't understand that at all. So it makes sense to have him in this scene in that way. And then she goes to the restaurant Mm -hmm. and doesn't bring him back. Right. Which I thought was just kind of like the saddest thing ever. Yeah. I mean, it would have been a little hypocritical of her to do that. Yeah. To tell Ty not to do it and then to go do it herself. But the fact that she's trying to work through things in her own way by just calling up the restaurant again and being like, this is a place where we were at and this is how I'm going to approach opening the door to those feelings again and seeing how I respond to them. And Penny Johnson Gerald is amazing in the scene. Like, I know. I can't imagine having to do that like by yourself and you're not working off of anybody. Just you need to just go through all this yourself right now. Yeah, which is a lot of what the character was having to do. Claire herself has to go through it by herself. Mm -hmm. Because like you're saying, it could have been hypocritical for her to have Isaac there. But I think both ways the scene would have been impactful. Because this is another thing I noticed with this episode specifically. 
they have lulls with no music. Mm. And sometimes I did feel like that made things more impactful because you didn't have that distraction of like taking you out of just that there's a backdrop. There's something happening in the background for your ears to hear. It's just like you sit with it. Yeah. And that's how I felt like you kind of have to sit with it with Claire. Yeah. The engineering team makes their way back inside after completing the refit. After a quick glance toward Isaac's empty chair, Mercer orders Gordon to take the Orville out. The ship leaves the station and engages Quantum Drive. I just had to linger on that for a moment. I know, I was excited when, <laughs> when he said that. <laughs> in Lamar's quarters, we see him in bed with a Tequilian woman. When she gets something out of John's nightstand, she asks about a fork that she also finds in there. John says that it was a birthday gift from Isaac, and despite Isaac not understanding the significance of birthday gifts, he kept it anyway. The two have a conversation about Isaac's choice, and John admits that he thought it was the wrong thing to do. She suggests that on her world, it's seen as a personal choice that everyone respects, and that it's the memory of that person that's truly treasured. At this, John seems to get an idea and rushes off to engineering. Which is probably where you started celebrating. <laughs> I was like, wait, there's hope. <laughs> what did you think about? I mean, first of all, the special effects makeup was phenomenal. Oh, amazing. Obviously. Yeah, always. I really liked this character, though. I did, too. I like her for John. I was also a little bit like, oh, I guess everything with Turco is over unless they just have like an open, casual relationship. I guess a lot's changed since the Kalon War has started. <laughs> this is John's new horizon. <laughs> yeah, this is John's new horizon. Yeah. I have to say, I don't remember what she called it, but she essentially eats rock candy. Yeah. yeah. After sex. <laughs> Just that he has like a piece of rock candy ready to go in the side table. But it was really nice that he kept that fork from Isaac. Yeah, I like that bit because I felt like it emphasizes what gifts are really about. Like it didn't matter that it was a fork with no huge meaning behind it. John kept yeah. it because of who it was from. It meant something to him. Yeah, it was also kind of a good example of the ripples that Isaac has left in the ship that haven't all been negative. Yeah. So even when like Claire's holding the banana, it makes you kind of smile because you remember the whole interaction that they had with the banana and the fact that John kept the fork. And I mean, in a society where it doesn't seem like things are really important mm -hmm. and you look at their quarters, there's not a lot of stuff. True. Which I kind of love about the future. It's all very minimal. And I'm like, there's so much less to dust. Well, they can have anything they want at any time, really. Yes. So why keep it all around? It's not like like you could go throw it away and just have it turn back into matter and be like, you know what? I want that back and then just get it back. Yeah. He didn't have to keep the fork is essentially what yes. it comes down to. And... What did you think about the discussion between her and John about death or people choosing to not continue living? Yeah, I thought it was inevitable in an episode like this, of course. At first, I was a little like this is a little bonk bonk on the head, like this is what the episode's about. But it's also what I appreciate about sci-fi and about these kind of shows, because I mean, we've talked before about how one of the things we like about this is that they don't often force one side of an argument down your throat. Yeah. And they present questions instead. So we're coming at everything from a human perspective. Isaac is not human. Her species is not human. There are other perspectives out there, and we can't say that ours is the only one that matters and ours is the only one that is right. So I felt like this scene was a good example of that back and forth, that give and take. 
because we are given two sides from two differing perspectives. And I thought their conversation about it was civil, which is also very nice to see when it feels like so many disagreements these days don't end up that way. It did upset John, though. You could tell that it, it did like, oh, sure, hit like a little bit of a nerve. But yeah, that the conversation was civil. But the end point of what she was saying is that as long as you keep me in your head, that's what matters. Yeah. Like I'll always live up here. But when he's leaving, he's just kind of like, yeah, stay as long as you like. I was like, that seems like a hit it and quit it. Yeah. <laughs> he could have been a little more forthcoming with why he was leaving and not make her feel bad. Yeah. But I feel like that's a very John thing to do, though. So he is a ladies man. At least I present John seems he's a ladies man. In engineering, Lamar takes another look at Isaac's body and removes a chip from his head. He scans it before and after he has Unk smash it into pieces. In the briefing room, John reports that he may have found a backup of Isaac's consciousness, possibly even hidden from Isaac himself. It is in a stasis field, but if they want to attempt to revive him, they have to do it soon. Based on the level of technology involved, they'd need the intuition of a biological brain that can visualize data in multiple dimensions. In other words, they'd need Charlie Burke. Mercer goes to Charlie to ask for her help, but she's not interested in bringing Isaac back to life. He insists that as a member of the crew, she could be duty-bound, but she continues to make the case that he killed her best friend. Ed continues to make his argument, but before he can get an answer, the ship takes fire. The Orville coming under fire might be a convenient way to add some suspense here, of course, as we wait longer for Charlie's answer. But I think it's also a good way to allow the audience time to process their thoughts about this. I also got jump scared by that. Oh, yeah, I suppose that could happen. <laughs> I was just like ingrained in it because Ed's saying like, I'm just tired of you acting like you have a monopoly on grief. Oh, man, what a line that was. I know. And like nobody else has lost anyone. And I was like, that's an excellent point because yeah. I can understand her frustration. But the fact when he said that and then there's like a jump scare attack on the ship, it jars you into like, oh, obviously they need to deal with this, but I thought that was a real whopper of a line. Totally. Overall, I just thought the conversations in this episode and the fact that they had Charlie kind of be on the opposite side of things added a different perspective I didn't expect for this. Yeah. That's wild to me. She works for the union and she's like, I don't want to help. That's something I didn't expect, just being so staunch. And I'm glad he's dead. Yeah. So that's just something that you think being a part of like a ship community like this, you just do for your crewmates. But what happens when situations like this arrive and you have strong feelings like, can you say no? Yeah, I thought Ed's line to there that you don't have a monopoly on grief. I thought that was really important because just for him to reestablish his authority as well, because she really has. I mean, she's shown him respect, but she's very rebellious. Yeah. At least in this one matter. I don't know if that's going to be a constant thread with her, but he definitely felt a need to put his foot down in a way. And we see again pretty soon that he's going to attempt to put his foot down again. It's still not really going to work. So I'm interested to see how their relationship develops as well. If you're Mercer and you got this ensign <laughs> who's going to yeah. be defying all the time, do you keep him around? It seems like she can, for lack of a better word, get away with murder a little bit. Just like the defiance and almost lack of respect. Like my point of view is the right point of view. And 
I don't know how you don't see this and I'm going to scream it from the mountaintops, which is a personality type that does exist in our world and apparently in the future. But Ed is very patient with her considering. Yeah. And I'm wondering if that's just the case. Another captain might be like, you're out of here. Insubordination. This is crazy. And he kind of does, but not to like a mean level, just like a more disappointed in you (laughs) level. Yeah. I just don't know how. I think a lot of them are probably dealing with complicated emotions about what just happened. Because how many of the Union ships got destroyed? People died, their friends. So Ed's saying, like, you're not the only person. I think it kind of puts into perspective, even for Charlie, for that minute second before the attack, like maybe she even has that realization. Like, oh, yeah, I guess I wasn't the only one that lost somebody important to me. Yeah. As Mercer and Burke rush back to the bridge, we see that a Kalon vessel has been firing at the ship. They attempt to retreat into the atmosphere of a nearby planet, but the storms are draining their deflectors rapidly. Ed orders that their full complement of torpedoes be loaded into a shuttle and launched by remote guidance. When it's far enough away, they detonate the shuttle, which gives the appearance that the Orville has been destroyed by the storms. The Kalon vessel sees the destruction of the decoy and departs, leaving the Orville to safely exit the atmosphere. Again, the visuals. We can't say it enough. Yeah. They're just so good throughout this entire sequence, and they've taken everything up a notch. It's just wild. But I do hope they don't have to blow up a shuttle every time they encounter (laughs) another Kalon ship. I think that Kelly had said, oh, submarine warfare. And at first I'm like, I don't know what that means. And then now I know what that means. So (laughs) it was a very clever way of doing it. And I'm like, it worked. They blew up the shuttle and the Kalon just were like, yeah, I guess we did what we needed to do. I thought at first they were loading it with torpedoes to kamikaze the shuttle into the Kalon ship and blow it up that way. I didn't realize that they were going to do like a decoy maneuver. I was just along for the ride because I was like, I have no idea what they're doing here, but I'm (laughs) ready for it. It was interesting, though, seeing like physical torpedoes being loaded Mm -hmm. in because when I watch sci-fi shows, I'm like, they're just orbs of light. That's what torpedoes are. <laughs> they're laser beams. They're, it's like, so seeing that's that, funny. I was like, oh, that's interesting. Because that's how they're portrayed when they come out. Yeah. So I'm always <laughs> just like, they're just balls of super intense electricity and lasers. And so that was eye-opening in that way for me as well. <laughs> Wait, they're actually torpedoes? <laughs> they have actual torpedoes? Unbelievable. Lamar calls from engineering and reports that the storm took out the stasis field. It's now or never if they're going to get Isaac back. Mercer then orders Burke to head to engineering to assist Lamar, but she refuses. So he relieves her of duty. In the mess hall, Marcus introduces himself to Charlie. She mentions the graffiti in the lab and insists that they have something in common. She's surprised, however, when Marcus then asks her to help Isaac. He believes that he's the reason Isaac did it. Charlie insists that he wasn't the cause, and though she's glad that he's dead, it remains a tragedy anytime someone commits suicide. Marcus says that when he told Isaac he wished he was dead, he thought he meant it at the time, but it's not really what he wants. Marcus has grown up a lot, not just from the perspective of, oh, a child actor has grown up, right? but just his character has. I was just sitting there like watching the scene, wondering if it was enough to convince Charlie because she is so intent on like, no, he doesn't deserve to live. He's dead. Great. I have some big thoughts on this that are stored in my takeaway. So I will I will get to those later <laughs> for me, at least. And for me, I'm like, I'm just worried I'm going to cry during my takeaway. So <laughs> with Charlie, though, it's interesting that Marcus is the switch that 
changes her opinion on it. Mm. Because I just feel like she is so stuck on the fact that Isaac is bad to have around. She doesn't want him around. But perhaps the humanity of Marcus and the impact that Isaac had on Marcus is enough to convince her that his presence is important to this kid. Mm. And that's more important than how I feel about it. It would be the first time... Charlie really considered the feelings of anybody else in their relationship with Isaac versus how she feels about him. It does bring up a good point that in that prior scene with Ed, and he makes that statement of why do you get to have the monopoly on grief? Yes. If that shows also like the catalyst movements of it, like it's more nuanced in the sense of she's had some time to process and then maybe come to the conclusion that maybe she's not right. Mm -hmm. Or maybe there's other things that are more important than how she feels about this. Right, because other people have lost things, too. Yeah. We then see the illumination of what looks like a technological city, but it's soon revealed to be the circuitry on the inside of Isaac's head. When we zoom out, we see Lamar and Burke working on Isaac, who comes back to life and sits up. When Isaac asks for an explanation, Charlie tells him that she didn't do it for him. So she's still holding that grudge, and that makes sense. Like, I wouldn't expect her to totally change her mind right now. This is also when we see how her brain works in the sense of the fourth dimensional geometry. Yep. So it shows off that she has a specific skill that only she could help bring Isaac back. She wanted to be relieved of duty almost immediately. Oh, yeah. Do you think she did it for Marcus? I do. It's the only evidence we've seen, really. Yeah. If she did it for another reason, we weren't shown anything else. Because Charlie comes out swinging in this, literally just swinging with a lot of controversial and hot takes Mm -hmm. everywhere. But throughout this episode, I do feel like there is even a growth arc for her. And it makes me very interested to see where her character is going to go this season, because there is room for her to be influenced by others. Yeah, I am curious to see what her arc is going to be. And they're they're starting at a place where there is there's room for a lot of growth. Yeah, I hope Isaac and Charlie BFFs. By the end of season three. I don't know if we're going to get to that point, but I do think there's going to be progress there. Yeah. I would hope so. Me too. In sickbay, Dr. Finn is counseling Isaac and asking how he's feeling since being revived. When she asks why he did it, Isaac says that his presence on the ship has been detrimental to the operation of it. His deactivation was intended to restore the efficiency of the crew. Accepting that he won't admit that feelings may have played a part in his decision, Claire offers a logical argument to convince him not to try again. She proposes that the psychological damage of the crew would be greater if he succeeded in deactivating himself again, resulting in an even worse crew efficiency. Isaac didn't account for the possibility of the crew's feelings toward him to change over time and made an almost irreversible decision based on limited data. Before he leaves the session, Claire tells him that she's glad he's still here. As the episode comes to a close, we see Marcus head to Isaac's lab. While he doesn't say anything before leaving, it's evident that he's glad as well. That whole conversation at the end between Isaac and Claire was, it just felt very raw. I don't know if you felt the same way. Oh, for sure. Because Claire has to be extra candid with Isaac and come at it from more than just an emotional perspective. Like she can't say, look at how you affected all these people when you made this decision. She has to go around that and convince from a logical perspective too, which is also interesting because 
Now there's a logical perspective to it too. It's not just tied in emotion. It's not just tied in how people feel. There's a lot of arguments to make against it. And because she has to come at it from every possible angle and convince this person, I said person too, convince this person not to do this again, she has to be extra forceful. And obviously she's coming at it from an emotional place too, where like of anyone on the crew, she's the one who really, really, really wants to make sure he doesn't go through with that again. Yeah, it's like I brought up earlier, Marcus saying, I want you dead. I wonder if it was like, because he's so data focused and little bits here and there and he makes analysis based upon that. That probably wasn't a thought in his mind until that bit of data was introduced saying like, oh, but then also Charlie said, nobody wants you here. So it's not just on Marcus. Like there's a lot of information. He has murderer written in his lab. There's all these things coming up. And I do wonder if by a lot of the people asking, are you okay? You've been being harassed this whole time and you haven't told anyone Mm -hmm. and him going, I'm not bothered by this, but getting that feedback almost setting off like maybe it's a logical choice to be bothered by this. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. And if it's bothering the crew, me not being here makes sense. Hmm. I did not consider that. But I do. There's got to be something, you know, like data got an emotion chip. Mm hmm. (laughs) There might be a tiny emotion chip in there. I'm just saying. I mean, this is the constant debate with Isaac that we've had over two seasons already. Like, how much does he feel and how much does he not feel? The way he presents things is that he does not. And yet we keep seeing these little pieces of evidence. It's just something's... There's something about Isaac that seems there's more to him than just an operating system. Mm. And I don't know if that's just me wanting it to be that way, but I I just, I swear there is something (laughs) there that's more human than not, because he did go through these steps to be like, okay, if I do this, then it's going to make everything better for the crew. Mm -hmm. Why would he say at the end, give my best to the Finn family? It's those little things. Yeah, absolutely. So it's enough to argue like, yeah, it could just be that if he was completely robotic, those personal touches wouldn't exist in my head. He wouldn't have signed off with that. I agree. Well, then, Katie, what is your big takeaway from this episode? Do you want to go first? (laughs) Do you want me to go first? I don't know. Who, Who would you want to go first with the takeaway? I mean, normally I ask you the question, but if you're feeling like you want me to go first, I'll go first. I have no idea really what your takeaway was, to be honest. This time, I don't know that I have a good read on what your takeaway was. Okay. I like the episode. I did. Okay. Like you, I assume like you, I did not expect a story this heavy to start the season. Yeah. Given that, this is a unique take on suicide that only sci-fi can do. People who take their lives do not have the opportunity to learn from it. Mm -hmm. But within this sci-fi context, Isaac does. And that's why we can come into this episode the way that we can. And someone can actually learn something from it. And it can be a lesson and thought-provoking in that way. Again, one of the things that we always say that we love about sci-fi is the way that it explores these questions in ways that you can't otherwise do so. And I think this episode is very effective in doing that and presenting something That normally is like an ultimate decision, but someone actually gets to learn from it at the end. I like that. Yeah. 
I agree with you that I don't think that Burke's change of mind felt as authentic as it should have. It was just more abrupt than I would have liked it to be. I think there was a crucial line missing from the conversation that she had with Marcus. If Marcus had ended their conversation by saying something to the effect of, he was my friend. I was waiting for something like that and he didn't say it, but I feel like it would have added more weight while connecting Marcus's loss of his friend to Charlie's loss of her friend. And I think Charlie had to connect with Marcus on a super relatable thing to have it change her mind. So like if Charlie's perspective was Marcus lost his Amanda and this whole episode I've been saying, well, will it bring Amanda back? Well, what if she can bring back Marcus's Amanda? Yeah. I feel like that adds so much more to it. I didn't even think about it in that way because that would have maybe tied it together a little nicer. I feel like this show does a good job about breadcrumbing things, Mm -hmm. but you have to sometimes be like really intentional to find the breadcrumbs, which I think is just smart writing. But I think there was just small turning points and the Marcus conversation clearly was impactful, but I could see how saying something like Isaac was Marcus's Amanda would have made her more motivated, Mm -hmm. I guess, to do it. But was Isaac Marcus's Amanda? I don't know. But if they had made that argument, I could have bought it. They were obviously very close. That entire family was very close. And again, I get that the intent is that Charlie doesn't want Marcus to feel the guilt that he's clearly feeling. And she's doing him a favor, not Isaac a favor. And I get that. But I'm not sure if that would have been enough. So even just throwing in an extra little bit, I think could have fixed it for me. I'm not saying it's the answer. Yeah. But I did feel that the decision change did feel a little out of place. And clearly I'm not the only one because you had a little bit of that too. I think what I did is then watching back through the episode, like the duty Mm -hmm. portion, I think probably played a part in it. I mean, Ed almost went in on her with the whole, I was waiting for the rest of that conversation before the attack where he's saying the whole monopoly on grief because I'm like, it left me wanting more of that conversation. Just because I'm like, well, what exactly was he going to say after that? And what was her response going to be? Right. Which is exactly why they cut it off. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Leave us wanting a little bit. I mean, she got essentially fired. She did. Yeah. Yeah. She got relieved of duty. And then Marcus came and talked to her. I kind of wonder if it's an amalgamation of all those things. Probably. She wants to keep her job. She probably felt some empathy for this kid because I would assume that Charlie knew about Marcus's history? Oh, yeah. She would have had to know a little bit. And word gets around on a ship and all that stuff. I do see what you're saying, though, where it's like if he had tied it with like, hey, Isaac was my friend. I didn't really want him dead. Mm -hmm. But I also kind of like that you brought that up because then in my head canon, what I do is I internalize that that is what she was thinking. (laughs) I'm like, oh, she kind of went through this thing where like she had the ability to bring back Isaac for someone and nobody can bring back Amanda for her. And I do feel like that was part, of, and I'm headed canoning as well, but I do feel like that was part of the implied message. Yeah. I just needed that line to really hit it home. I'm a big fan of the circle and tying up that circle, which is why I wanted the friend connection, because it was mm-hmm. what Charlie was focused on throughout the whole episode. And her final decision from what we were shown and told had nothing to do with not getting over, but 
really feeling that empathy for someone going through the same thing that she's going through. It was like a different thing. Yeah. It was guilt instead. Yeah. I do enjoy getting to talk about it, though, because it's like not just given to us on a platter. It gives us a chance to kind of think about her motivations and maybe go, why did she do it? I do wonder if that was intentional or if it was just the way it went. <laughs> Maybe. But I, I do feel like when shows over explain stuff to me, it, I don't marinate in it as much as I, I would. Do you think adding that line would have been over explaining? No, not not that oh, line. Okay. If it was like, if you bring back Isaac, it would be like bringing back Amanda for yes, you. That, that would be, be Yeah, that'd be way too much. <laughs> if he had just said like, oh God, if they had said he was my friend. Oh, <laughs> just the past tense of yeah. that. That's what I was waiting for. Like, that's the kind of emotional punch that I wanted. They did linger on her face, though, which I think was kind of showing that the gears were turning. Something was working out in her head. But yeah, no, I would. I don't I don't think that line would have been out of place at all. I just I like being able to sit and be like, well, maybe this is what it was. And like, but part of me goes like maybe later on something will come up and she'll reveal why she did do it. Maybe. Maybe not. I'm trying to come at these as mini movies. Yeah. In the sense that this is a self-contained story. And yes, some character beats will carry on from episode to episode, but each story is its own kind of microcosm in a way. Well, I like to think that there will be a picnic situation (laughs) where Isaac and Charlie are sitting down and it's going to be the end close of the season. She's going to turn to him and be like, you want to know the real reason I brought you back? I know that won't happen, but I can see it from both sides, mm. I guess, because it did seem like why I do wonder, like, what was her real official reason for doing it? I think the episode tells us that she didn't want Marcus to feel guilty. Yeah. I know that's what I got from it. I also because then I started doing that thing where I was breadcrumbing it, where I was like, it could be because she feels guilt because of her duty. She just got fired. Marcus is rolling up being like, hey, can you do this for me, please? Because I didn't mean to tell him to kill himself, essentially. Yeah. And then. Maybe getting some perspective from Ed. So I think that it, for me, it's like a lot of different reasons. But yeah, I think that line would have fit Chef's Kiss in there as well, though. <laughs> I know we said this earlier, but huge round of applause to the crew behind the scenes on this. Yeah. And I'm sure it's going to be a, a thread that continues throughout the season where we're just going to be like, oh, did you see that? Yeah. That's going to happen constantly. The new sets and the designs look incredible. However. Uh-oh. I'm going to be that person. This is a me thing. This is a total me thing. It's not me. No, wait, it's not you. It's (laughs) me. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. The crew would probably hate hearing me say this, but I kind of miss the carpets. You miss the carpets? I do. The new look is a little more sterile, while the old look was a little more cozy. And I know that change is tough for me. It's hard for me, too. And it's probably just going to take me a little time to adjust to the new look. I have no issues with the new look. Mm -hmm. I just was used to the old one. And that's just a me thing. I'm going to be honest with you. And I feel like I pay very close attention to detail. I didn't even know there was carpet in the first set. (laughs) (laughs) I saw the new stuff and I was like, wow, this looks really good. Until I saw the side by size, I didn't realize how drastically different it does look. Yeah. I I feel like it looks more futuristic. Yeah, it does. Which I know it's a sci-fi show, but... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> the way that I think about it, too, is like the Kalon did some damage to the ship. They're just like, let's just put some new panels up. This carpet's outdated. It's like if you had carpet in a bathroom. Oh, yeah. Like, I know why they did it. I mean, it was more yeah. even from a production perspective than anything. So I, I fully support their decision. 
I was just like, still a little bit. That's all. I'll get over it. But I just missed it a little bit. Yeah. I'm kind of curious, like in a few episodes, if I ask you again, like, so how are you feeling about the bridge? Like, oh, interesting. Yeah. How many episodes is it going to take me to be like, yeah. this is the way it looks now? <laughs> all right, Rob, how are we doing with the bridge? Interesting. I'm kind of <laughs> curious about that, too. <laughs> yeah. I'll let you know. I feel like in time, like you get used to stuff uh, and then it's like, hey, I know I'll get used to it. It'll just take me a little. I'm the same way with change. It's like when you move or you get like a new piece of furniture and you're like, I'm not sure how I feel about this because it's just different. Yep. But then eventually you're like, oh, I kind of love this because at first it looked bigger than I wanted it to. But now it fits the room nicely. Yeah. So, yeah, sometimes I feel like it just changes hard. That's all I have. So, Katie. Yes. What was your big takeaway? OK, so I've been thinking a lot about the show since we watched it. I will say, to get it out of the way first, the special effects, my mouth was on the floor, absolutely in love. Like, I just, I call it space porn. I don't know if I've called it space porn on the podcast. I'm pretty sure I have. You have. Yeah. <laughs> just like the big, grandiose views of star fields and nebulas and ships and planets. And I'm just so excited for this season because I know there's going to be a lot more. I've seen some screenshots and also this episode alone, just based on, like, even when they were working outside of the ship. All the details of the new tools, the quantum core, it looks so good. And I am a hardcore critic of CGI in our day and age because sometimes it just doesn't look good. Mm -hmm. Oh, the new aliens in this episode, too. There's just a lot of stuff that made me excited about this season because you can tell that a lot of love went into this, a lot of detail went into it, and a lot of hard work during a pandemic went into mm -hmm. this. But it still had that like Orville feel which I really appreciated because like with moving to a new platform, you know, it seemed like the budget went up, which is great because it's very much reflected in the show. Mm -hmm. But you always get nervous because you're like, I love this show. Is it going to still have that same feel that it did the last two seasons? And I really do feel like it had that hold on me just like it did before. So yeah. in a way that was comforting to me. <laughs> so there's the topic of suicide that comes up in this, obviously. I have my degree in psychology. So mental health topics are very important to me and people taking care of themselves. But I thought the fact that they dealt with something so serious, like right out the gate, was impressive. And it made me appreciate the show more. Because at first, when I watched this, I was like, oh, my God, they're going there. Mm. And I think by having Isaac be the one to do it, it removed the humanity of it. So it made it more palpable. Like it's not as... Heavy. It's still heavy because Isaac's one of my favorite characters. So I didn't want him to do that. But I thought that the way they dealt with this beautifully, because it's so difficult to talk about these topics and sometimes shows do not deal with it. Well, I don't think. And there's a lot of like nuanced things that they did in the writing, such as like Isaac going and looking out the window specifically. I feel like seems like such a small thing but it mirrors what someone might be going through when they're thinking about what their options are. And so Isaac did it because it was the logical choice. And I put logic in quotations because I thought it was a really amazing metaphor for people who struggle with that because for them, it is a logical choice. Like for someone who makes a decision most of the time to be like, this is it. I don't want to be here anymore. It seems like the only option. Yeah. And so that's what essentially Isaac did. I wrote here, I fought back tears the first time I watched it. And then the second time, I'm just like crying multiple times throughout this episode. I'm just sitting there 
like I think Mark went out. So I was just sitting there just like, (laughs) and it was multiple times throughout it because I just felt like there was so many scenes that portrayed something that obviously tugged my heartstrings. But like when Claire's in the restaurant Mm -hmm. and Ty is talking to Isaac in the simulator, even when she's just holding the banana, that whole sequence itself was a lot. Yeah. But when Claire was talking about what was it? it was like a she was on a planet and then they, she had to put a stone in her mouth to get her saliva glands yep. to kick in. Just the metaphors that they used, I appreciated because it's like a complicated grief and they took the time to discuss grief instead of just glossing over like, Isaac died, let's fix him. Right. It showed the crew and certain important people to Isaac dealing with it. So I feel like grief is never linear. It's never easy to go through, but... It was something that I think everybody can relate to in a way. And I feel like a lot of shows shy away from it or maybe not a lot of shows, but don't handle it in a way that I feel is relatable. And I felt like this was relatable. Yeah. And I just feel like it it showed it in a very human way. By using a robot. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And not like sugarcoating it. Yeah. They didn't just like gloss over anything. Yeah. Like Claire gets mad at him at the end. Yeah. And that's a very human reaction. When Claire's sitting across from him and trying to like logic or reason with Isaac, Isaac doesn't see the fault in what he did. Right. And if you're dealing with someone that you care about who is thinking in those ways, it's so hard to try to show that person why they're important. Mm -hmm. It's just such a difficult topic, I think, to finesse. And if you don't handle it right, it can be more damaging to tell a story like this than to actually handle it properly and have it be more poignant. And I thought it was really nice to see a storyline with that because I think it makes people feel less alone with it, the grief and also dealing with suicide. And I appreciate that sometimes life isn't wrapped up in a nice little story with two little bows and that there are always two ends of the spectrum. And they do a really nice job of showing that like Isaac's side and then everybody else on the ship's side. Yeah. Even though it was wrapped in Claire's logical explanation I think even just the simple suggestion of somebody who's going through this is possibly not considering all the data. Yeah. Even if that's the big takeaway from it, that's a huge thing, even though it was like one line. People who are dealing with this grief and considering this as an option are probably not considering every piece of information out there as to why it might not be the best idea. And I thought it's another metaphor, I think. For showing someone that you don't need to do that. You don't always have all the data and tomorrow might be so different than how you're doing today. And so I'm sitting there and I, I, as I'm watching this, I just, the word that comes to mind is that it was kind of a genius way of dealing with this because even though it was metaphorically handled in a lot of ways, I feel like they gave really concrete answers to things dealing with suicide and it was handled just beautifully. It was just honestly just the way that they told the story worked so well. Yeah. Because it's such a gray area. And it made me really think about how much I missed this show. (laughs) Like now that it's back. Because I left this episode, I felt like so mentally stimulated. I was satisfied. And then I just literally sat with the conversation and this topic in a way that I wouldn't have otherwise. Mm -hmm. So I just appreciate the way that they take the time to write difficult things because it's not the first time they've written like about difficult subject matter. No. So I walked away from it feeling like, wow, that was a heavy episode, but I was just grateful it existed is the best way to put it. 
I guess I didn't cry. I almost cried earlier in the episode, <laughs> but I, I, it's also almost hard to put into words how they got it right, I feel. I do too. So I liked the episode, even <laughs> though it dealt with something very, very heavy. And I just appreciate that they took the time to tell it. Okay. Well, then before we get out of here, we have one more thing to do because Katie's husband, Mark, is also a big fan of the Orville and always leaves us with his one-sentence review. Episode opens with the dream sequence, and I'm like, oh my god! Charlie talks to Isaac in the cafeteria, and I'm like, oh my god! Gordon says stuff about Isaac, and I'm like, oh my god! John gets busy, and I'm like, Oh my God. Isaac ends his life and I'm like, oh my God. The credits roll and I'm like, oh my God, it's back. Quantum Drive is a production of the Geek Generation. If you like this show, be sure to check out our other podcasts on the Geek Generation Network at thegeekgeneration.com. If you'd like to support the show and get access to exclusive bonus podcasts along with other perks, you can visit our Patreon campaign at thegeekgeneration.com slash support. You can follow Quantum Drive on Twitter at Quantum Drive Pod and me at the Rob Logan. You can follow me on Twitter at PlayKatiePlay and on Twitch at Katie Peters Plays. And Katie is spelled K-A-T-I-E. Please rate the show and write a review on Apple Podcasts. If you do, we may read your review on an upcoming episode. Finally, questions and comments can be sent to quantumdrive at thegeekgeneration.com. We're out of here for now, but we'll see you soon in In the the future. future.